When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it's Vass here with the How To Academy podcast. How do the languages we speak shape how we think and make sense of the world? A professor at Northwestern, psycholinguist Viorica Marianne, asks that question every day. She's distilled the answer into a new book called The Power of Language. She sat down with Nicole Wong to share her ideas. Perhaps to begin, we could begin with the epigraph to this new book, and it says... To have another language is to possess another soul. And I think that is an incredible concept. So could you tell me a bit about this idea and what drew you to the power of multilingualism? Yes. So when I first came across that quote, like you, I was struck by how much it resonated with my experience as someone who spoke more than one language and how I really felt like a somewhat different version of myself, like a different self was unleashed when I spoke one language or the other. And then through conversations and interactions with other people who spoke more than one language, I found that it's not a unique experience, that many people who are bilingual, multilingual, do find that they become somewhat different versions of themselves when they speak one language versus another. And partly it's the language and partly it's the association that that language has, the memories, the experiences, the culture that filters through the language that comes together to shift our perspectives a little bit. And then as I dove in into the literature, it turned out that our personal experiences are reflected in some of the findings out there with people who speak multiple languages, really often remembering different things, making different decisions, and even scoring differently on personality tests. So that that's some of the background to that quote. I think that's that's a great way for us to begin. And indeed, you're right, when, when we speak in other languages, whether it's the language we grew up speaking or a second language, we feel like we almost get to escape from the self that we know and, and embody a different self. So why, why you mentioned this a little bit, and I wonder if you could expand on why might that be? Why do we feel that, that kind of shift? And what were the most significant ones that you found in your research? There are so many, and it's not just research from my lab. There are many other labs around the world that look at how speaking multiple languages changes not our not only our identities, but really even our brain changes our decision making. And this these changes can be observed from a very early age, from infancy, throughout the lifespan into older age. Language is such a powerful shaper of our cognition. The mind and language are connected. And there is a lot of uh, research on language and mind, as you probably know. And when I first discovered the work and the research on language and mind, I found it really fascinating. But in all of that work, bilingualism, multilingualism was sort of like an afterthought. It really, the experience of the majority of the world's population did not 
play a central role, role at all. People are just sort of discard it as, as noise, as not interesting, not relevant. And it, it speaks to just a very monolingual-centric perspective to studying the mind and studying language. The human experience, the majority of the human experience, is really not represented, not understood. There's, so if what particular area are you most interested in? Would you like to talk about memory or decision-making or perception? or uh, I, you know, Tell me a little bit more so I don't just go on a, on a long monologue of, of things. <laughs> um, I'm sure we would be equally interested if you did go on a long monologue. But let's actually jump on that concept that you were talking about, about how research for, for you know, the vast majority of our history has not reflected the the reality of the world, which is that most of the world is multilingual. And we see even today, for example, there are foreign language departments across the United States, for example, that are getting less and less funding. So there seems to me that there is still a myth, despite you know, efforts to, to, to debunk this myth, but there's a myth that you know, monolingualism is the norm and it's great as long as the language you know is English. So why why do you think such such ideas and such concepts about about the language we use can be problematic beyond just practical or professional reasons? How does how does this kind of focus on on monolingualism shape a worldview? Yeah, so this gives us, I would say, not just an incomplete understanding of the human potential, the human mind, but really an inaccurate one. And the analogy I make there is studying heart disease only in men and then discovering that in women heart disease manifests differently. Or studying diabetes just in white people and then discovering that sugar is processed differently in the populations indigenous to North and South America. In the same way, if we just study the a cognitive architecture, the linguistic architecture, the neural architecture of monolinguals, we are really getting a very limited, incomplete view of the human mind and the human potential. It's hard to know why this position comes about. And it could be a, like a privileged perspective where <clears throat> the majority culture most often doesn't need to or think that they don't need to bother themselves with other languages unless it's a, a way to enrich themselves and a sort of a cultural marker prestige where if you do speak a minority language or lower global prestige language, you have a need, an economical need, a practical need often to learn another language. It's not just a cultural enrichment perspective. And also really because it's more complicated. Studying a bilingual system and a multilingual system doesn't provide a very clean laboratory environment. You have to control for so many other confounding variables. So I have ventured into bilingualism, a little bit trilingualism, but going into multilingualism is really hard because to conduct really clean empirical research, you have to control variability in your participants in language experience and age of acquisition, proficiency, amount of use. There's so many variables to consider because not all bi bilinguals and multilinguals are the same. You and I may be multilingual, but our experiences are completely different. And our linguistic experiences, therefore, shape all the other things we would be measuring. And it's very hard to, to make this overarching conclusions, which is why many people would just sort of discard it and think, oh, it's not interesting. Bilingualism is not interesting, or it's too, too messy to study. And 
I remember walking through the library, even as an undergraduate, and, and coming across all these really interesting books that opened my mind to a whole world of language and mind and consciousness and thinking, well, but what about the experiences of, of so many people like me? There wasn't a book like this, which is why I, mean, I decided to write it. I wrote the book that I wanted to read. As, as the saying goes, if there is a book that you want to read that hasn't been written yet, you must write it. I love that idea. And I think, I think that is so important because also it reflects when you contribute. It's this idea of like the future library and the library of you know, what we will have in, in years time. And when you contribute this work that studies multilingualism and the importance of language and the power and also the dangers of language, it adds to the future uh, books that, for example, your students could read, future students could read. And the breadth of your study and the depth of it, it really amazes me. I think, as you say, you said maybe people don't study multilingualism and bilingualism because it's messy or seemingly messy, but those, the intricacies of that is exactly what makes it so rich. So could you tell me about how you decided to study the, the number in your research, the number of languages that you have? And especially, I was, I was really moved that you, that you studied or conducted studies on Cantonese speakers because a lot of people assume that Cantonese is not sufficiently distinct <laughs> from Mandarin. So I was, I was really moved by that. So what, why did you choose to study such a, a large range of languages and how, what were the complexities of doing that? Yeah, so I am myself a native speaker of Romanian, but I grew up on the eastern side of side of Romania that was a Soviet part of the Soviet Union. It was a Soviet territory, which meant that the official language there was Russian. I had to go to Russian uh, childcare and speak Russian in public spaces, and that's true for the majority of people in the former Soviet Union. If you were not a native Russian speaker, you were bilingual with Russian being the official language. And so from a very early age, I would notice similarities and differences between Romanian and Russian that would puzzle me and, and draw my attention to peculiarities and how they marked or highlighted differences in, in thinking, really. And then later in school, I started studying English and eventually in college French and exposed to other languages. So when I started conducting experiments, the first language I went to was English and Russian because that was the population I had the greatest access to. And then w once I had a, a body of work with Russian-English bilinguals, it became really important to understand whether the findings are unique to just that population or whether they are descriptive of linguistic variation experience in general and how do people who speak other languages perform on those cognitive tasks. And for example, you know, what are the influences that differences or similarities in orthography, phonology play on, on language processing and cognition. So from there, initially as an attempt to replicate the original findings, but also to draw in on other questions and other populations. For example, you mentioned Cantonese and, and versus Mandarin, for example, or other languages spoken in China. You're right that, and not just in China, in that part of the world, oftentimes the Western world just says, well, that's the Chinese language, when of course there is no Chinese language, and the differences between Mandarin and Cantonese and other languages in that part of the world are sometimes greater than the differences between some of the Latin uh, Romance uh, languages like Italian and Romanian and French and Portuguese, which are known, and there is no 
controversy there that they are distinct languages as opposed to, you know, being a dialect of Chinese, which of course is not true for Cantonese. <laughs> and so there is this continuum between what's a language and what's a dialect. And there is this famous uh, saying that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy, meaning that what often passes the threshold for language is driven not as much by linguistic differences as by the political and social and economical frameworks. Uh, and that was true historically through our evolution, and it's still true today. And we see it playing out right now in the conflict in Ukraine uh, with arguments between differences and similarities uh, between the Russian and Ukrainian language, which those two languages are much more different than, for example, the Romanian language and the quote-unquote Moldovan language, which is not really a language. And the linguist will tell you there is no such language as Moldovan. It's a, a dialect of Romanian. But during the Soviet years, Moldovan was considered an official language and imposed a different alphabet. So we have this top-down social, socially imposed categories for what's a language and what's a dialect which is partly why we have looked at Cantonese, we have looked at Mandarin, we have looked at Korean, we have looked at Japanese, we have studied many languages in our lab to understand how do speakers of those languages think, how do they think in ways that are similar or different from speakers in other languages. And oftentimes, to be frank, that was really also driven by the languages spoken by the students and the research assistants in my lab, because I don't speak all of these languages. And I want to be very encouraging and supportive of the students that work in my lab to actually represent themselves in science, just like I was saying earlier that we don't see a lot of linguistically diverse representation in, in science, in people who conduct science and in the, in the studies themselves. This is a way to really increase that diversity. That is so true. And, and it's interesting. I imagine that for some of your students, they might have grown up in an environment where their, you know, the, the language they speak at home is suppressed or they're told, no, no, you only speak English in school. So now when they, you know, many years later, when they're in their twenties or when they're 18 and they come and then they hear from you that no, you actually want to learn from what they know from their home languages or from what they speak at home. I think that's such an incredible that's that's an incredible thing to do. And could you tell me a bit about, you know, do you do you see that kind of shift in your students when you ask them, no, I actually want to know more. I want you to speak in a different language and not just in English, for example. Yes, um, I do. So right now I'm teaching a class of 70 students, undergraduate students, and it's you almost see like a light go on and their faces light up, or it's such a validating experiences to be told and to, to hear that your language matters, your culture matters, who you are matters, and you don't have to fit into this, you know, English monolingual cookie cutter norm. It's not that there isn't a beautiful linguistic and cultural richness associated with English. Of course there is. And I, 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 I speak English, my kids speak English. We want to be multilingual, but it doesn't mean you know, learning English and, and becoming a speaker, a proficient speaker of English shouldn't mean extinguishing those other languages and those other enriching cognitive and linguistic experiences that are part of our heritage. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. 
I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. That is, that is very true. And I guess even within English, there are multiple Englishes. So could you tell to listeners who might not know about the different Englishes that, that exist, could you tell us a bit about that and also about why it's important to study them and validate them? Yeah, so it's interesting you mentioned that because the book, my book itself has been quote-unquote translated from American English into British English. And if you're an English speaker, that might come, uh, might seem like a funny thing, but there are indeed some phrases and, and spellings and things that are unique to British English versus U.S. English. And there are, of course, many other dialects of English that vary in how they are perceived and speakers of those dialects are subject to many different biases, some positive, some negative. You may have come across uh, My Fair Lady, uh, George Bernard Shaw's play that has been Pygmalion, you know, made into a, a movie that really shows how the dialect that you speak influences how people perceive you, what they think about it, the associations they make, speaking with a certain accent, speaking in a certain way, immediately activates this associations in, in, in your listeners' minds. So, of course, language has changed over time. It has changed historically. That's true for every language. If you just use it, so any, some of the most popular and well-read books in the world are the Bible and the Quran. And if you look at different editions of the Bible and the Quran historically, you can see how much language has changed. And every year, there are new words being added to the dictionary and the frequency of words vary, which is in itself a testament to how interactive language and mind are. We constantly change language. We Language changes how we think as new concepts come into focus or new discoveries are made. We label them. We come up with words and labels to refer to those concepts. So large numbers, for example, or very small entities, you know, until you had the microscope and until you developed math, you didn't have labels for those. So now as science advances, we develop those words that allow us to reason in abstract forms about complex things that we wouldn't be able to do without linguistic uh, markers. It is it is funny that especially too when it comes to you're describing how English itself has changed so much and you know as a as a student for example in in middle school perhaps and in secondary school um, as well we learned they were supposed to write in in standard English or proper English and I remember learning when I was in taking a medieval English class that you know, English used to be laughed at as like the mongrel tongue because it borrowed so much from other languages. So why do you think there is this myth? I mean, even not even just in, in, in English, but in other languages too, that there is like a proper version and that there's something about that has to be like a, like a pure English, like a pure French. What is the issue with being so resistant to the reality that languages change and take from other languages as well? This question goes beyond language, I think, in psycholinguistics and comes to human nature. So why do we like to categorize ourselves and have an other category? 
of course, language changes and language evolves and we have pidgin languages and we have uh, Creole language and we have dialects and none of those linguistic forms are inherently superior or inferior to another linguistic form. They are all languages and symbolic forms of symbolic systems that allow us to communicate. So the value is not really, the discrimination is really not against the language, but language functions as a proxy to discriminate against the speakers. So we don't discriminate against speakers of a certain linguistic form or dialect because of the language, as much as because of whatever classist or racist or social constructs we associate or, or try to project onto speakers of those languages, which is, once again, an example of how tightly connected languages to our mind and to our society and how many aspects of our life it really influences. That is, that is really, and it's quite, you know, we, we think about how deeply language, it's not just learning a language, it's learning a way of being sometimes, or the languages that we speak and grow up in also influence the way that we think, the values that we have. And I was wondering, can you can you tell us about that? What is the there is you mentioned in, in, in the book about how in fact even if you're bilingual, for example, speaking in one language and speaking another can have can relate to different moral codes or different ethics. So can you can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it, that's a very interesting area of research that looks at how speaking one language versus another changes what tends to guide your decision-making. So uh, one of the most famous examples there is the trolley dilemma. There are many versions of this trolley problem. In one version of this problem, you have this story of a, of a trolley rushing down, and there are five workmen working on the tracks, and this trolley is about to you know, drive over these people and, and kill them. And you are standing on a footbridge above those train tracks next to a very large person with a large backpack. And you don't have a lot of time. You have to quickly make a decision. And if you push this person off the bridge, the person will die, but he will stop the trolley and save the life of these five people. And then the question becomes, is it permissible to sacrifice the life of one person to save the life of five people. So what did you say if you were being faced with this problem? Would you say it is permissible or not? Oh, I think I'd, I would probably say it's not. Else I know I would have like nightmares the rest of my life if I pushed that person off the trolley. So it's it, there's no right or wrong answer. That's your answer, and that's what some people say. And you you hear an entire different you know range of answers. Some people say yes, it is permissible because you know you, the maximum good you save more people. Other people say it's not. Some people might say, well, yes, it's permissible, but I wouldn't do it. Like if someone else would do it, <laughs> yes, but I would never push another person. And there are versions of that problem where sometimes you don't have to push a person; you have to push press a button, and you know. It's a continuum, but what's interesting there is for people who speak more than one language, if they ask this question in the native language, there about 20% of people say, yes, it is permissible to push one person to save the life of five. If you ask them in a second language, about 33% of people say, yes, it is permissible to sacrifice the life of one person to save five. So you have this 13% shift 
which is, you know, quite a significant shift, 13%, simply by changing the language in which you ask the question. And so now there have been many experiments in many labs around the world trying to figure out what's driving this effect. And it's not clear whether it's because the native language is more tied to emotions and maybe the second language is more tied to logic and, and, and reasoning. But it does seem that the native language tends to be guided by what's known as a deontological set of values. So deontology is this what's inherently in principle right or wrong, regardless of what the ultimate common good is. So not dependent on the consequence, what is morally right or wrong, which is what you sort of said, like, I wouldn't be able to <laughs> sleep, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I had to kill a person. And then on the flip side, you have this utilitarian value for decision making, where the greater common good is what guides your decision. And in the second language, because it's less tied to emotion and it's more tied to logic and utilitarian thinking, you're more likely to say, yes, it is permissible. And what's, you know, if we really zoom out and think broader about this uh, question and about language and bilinguals and multilinguals, we can think of it as a continuum. So yes, maybe we would not ourselves push a person off the bridge to say five, but what if we're talking about not five people, but five billion people? And what if we don't have to push a person, but we have to press, you know, a button on our keyboard? So this guy, this this broadens uh, behind beyond just the trolley problem to this potential implications into more of a broader perspective, maybe even tied to artificial intelligence, maybe of a science fiction uh, phenomenon. You know how how far do we push the system if we distance ourselves from our native language and rely increasingly on logical symbolic systems, artificial languages, maybe, for example, at what point do most of us decide that it is permissible to sacrifice the life of many for the greater good of humanity or the planet or however far you want to push that? So that's one of the um, examples. And, and as you no, there are many directions like that considered in the book on how language interacts with decision and, and our mind and society at the individual level and then beyond that. I think, firstly, I love that you extend that because indeed AI and encoding are in their own way languages, uh, as you argue as well. And I think if we think to ourselves like, oh, if we if we you know if we learn more languages we ever connect to more people and that can be true but at the same time it is perhaps even if i learn a second language or, or if i learn a third or fourth language perhaps the kind of emotional resonance that it has will not be to the same degree so why why is that do do we know in research why it is that it is our are like the the first language that I know that is associated with emotion and is it for example like a increasing like an increasing degree of apathy if we keep learning more and more or is it just that it just so happens that anything else is not as emotional oh I would not call it apathy I would call it a, a different guiding set of rules that guide our decisions so uh, more as I said guided by logic and uh, more of a common good perspective. We learn our native language in this rich perceptual environment through our mother, our parents, our family, touch, smells, of course, sights, sounds. They are our primal experiences in life are tied to our native language, or if you grow up with multiple languages to you know, more languages. But you know, here's what's interesting. We're just now beginning to understand 
the multilingual mind. We're just now beginning to understand this uh, how multilingual experiences change our our brains and our mind, and what does it mean for our for how we think, for emotion, for for who we are as a species. We didn't even have many of the tools that are increasingly becoming available, like brain imaging or computational science. So we're just now beginning to understand, get answers to the questions that you're asking, and then at the same time. As we're trying to understand how natural languages shape the mind and how various symbolic systems influence the connectivity in the brain and our our thinking, our creativity, at the same time we're setting up on this other path with artificial、uh, languages and artificial intelligence that may eventually. Lead to an increased reliance on these artificial languages and the decreased richness of natural languages, and maybe even,、um, you know, very likely an increased extinction of many of the natural languages that we speak. So, you know, you're asking, well, why and how? And this is what I would like to know too. And this, this is what we are trying to bring into the conversation: how important it is to study multilingual minds, and how important it is to un- to understand how does using different languages change the decisions. That We make and what does it mean for us, and, and bring it into focus. It's it's really not as、uh, easy as you may think because, again, the majority of decision makers are not people like you and I. The majority of decision makers are not immigrant women from diverse backgrounds who speak other languages. So, what is considered valuable and important and necessary? Is guided by individuals that sometimes have a myopic understanding, to be frank, about the interaction between languages and mind, and what does that mean, and and really see the world through their own prism, which is understandable. We only know what we know, and what we see, what we can see, and if all we know is our experience as a native speaker of X language, we may even be resistant to understanding what it's like to speak another language, and. You know, you can you can liken it to literacy, acquiring literacy, or learning math, or learning music. These are all just like a natural language and not a symbolic system. Or when you learn a computer language, a new computer language, it allows you to do new things that you couldn't do without that language. Or you know, you learn how to read music, and you suddenly can can play something that was written you know, hundreds of years ago. So it's one way that perhaps. You can get an insight of what it means like to suddenly have multiple codes of communication at your disposal, and how, if you are truly proficient in multiple languages, what a powerful change that can be in 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 how you think and and who you are as a person. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom, and you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I firstly just want to comment that I think it's such a A, you know, a beautiful way to conceptualize also things like reading music or coding or mathematics as also languages, because so for any of our listeners who play an instrument, for example, it's like no way that is also you can say like I communicate in the language of music, and I think that is very very true for anyone who like me once tried to read music and just was thought like whoa, <laughs> no idea what's going on.、Um, 
But it's interesting that you're mentioning about immigration, about the, the kind of how a lot of people who make the decisions are not the ones who have experiences like yours or mine. And I particularly think about how, I mean, for some people, perhaps they, they've always grown up in the place that they are still in speaking English, for example, and learning a foreign language is kind of an imposed option or seen as an option that they learn in school for it's perhaps some students think it's for arbitrary reason which I uh, vehemently disagree with um, but for a lot of other people they are they have to it is it is a form of survival so how could you tell us a bit about how in those cases second or even third languages can shape our sense of self and also how the idea of mother tongue can become a very intricate and sometimes painful concept well there are so so many things in this question you know you started about uh, you know talking about music and so let's talk about that and then move to some of the other things so right you know it really comes down to even what is language in this broader sense and it's not universally agreed upon you know terminology it's controversial i would say that all of these are forms of language because they're all symbolic system that use symbols to transmit information across time and space. So I have concept and idea in my mind or sound and I encode it either through words as I talk to you, mathematical notations in math or a musical note. So all of these are symbolic systems that allow us to communicate. But then again, you know, I study language and there is this you know, English saying that when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So to me, <laughs> I, I, I see language and communication in many other forms. I see it in other species. I see it, you know, with artificial languages and have this much broader understanding of what language is. I mean, you know, I even talk in the book about genetics and that being a symbolic system, not a symbolic system, but, you know, allowing us to encode information in this DNA pairs in a way. So if we expand our definition of language, then, then we can really see how integral it is to consciousness, really, too. So then from there, your second part of your question was about the need to learn another language and immigrants. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and I would say to that, you know, in a way, like, thank goodness for that, because it, there is now some evidence that there are all this cognitive health advantages to being bilingual and multilingual, which may be countering some of the disadvantages that come from poverty and decreased. There, are, there is a lack of resources often in populations that are having to migrate as a result of war or you know be displaced for other reasons. And you can almost think of this bilingual and multilingual cognitive experience, just like literacy, compensating for some of the impoverished input that may be sometimes encountered as a result of difficult life circumstances. And it's almost like a public health. So I attended this conference recently where this was conceived of as more like it's like a public health benefit to to have multiple languages in society and that's a new idea but then going back to you talking about the mother tongue having you said sometimes what did you how do you describe it traumatic or i guess that the idea that all the languages we end up speaking somehow shape our sense of self but especially when say we're we're we move into a, a country where we don't speak the language and we have to quickly learn the idea of and perhaps even then our mother tongue is suppressed, we're not encouraged to speak it in school. How does the idea of mother tongue perhaps evolve and become sometimes perhaps even a kind of painful concept? 
Yeah, that's, it, it does sometimes, doesn't it? It varies. So it seems that the way we think about our mother tongue and our second language is very much influenced by the experience and memories that are associated with, that, with the use of that language. So for some people, like you described, it can be a difficult and a pain, painful association. But for others, on the contrary, the mother tongue can be associated with you know, warmth and memories that are of, of family and happiness and joy and childhood really sort of depends on what kind of experiences have been encoded in that language. And then flip side, the second language, sometimes if you're an immigrant, can be associated with, you know, freedom and economic prosperity, and it has very positive associations. Um, and for others, it's associated with you know, sadness and loneliness and loss. And for others, you know, both languages have both positive and negative associations. So it's, it really varies. In this case, language, you know, functions as a, as a, fray, as a mental frame that activates a, a, certain, a certain frame of reference for, for our memories. That is a really interesting response to that. And, and, and thank you for that. And you were mentioning before, you are mentioning how you know, even if immigration itself can often be fraught with a lot of difficulty and, and you know, immigrant populations often face obstacles that, that people who are not immigrants might not face or might not face as much, um, but that there are cognitive benefits to, to being multilingual. And one of them that you, it, that you mentioned is this idea of being able to see connections between seemingly disparate things and how it leads to and perhaps it can create it can well it can actually lead to creation it can lead to more creativity so can you tell us a bit about that skill why it's so important to to be able to you know make these connections and why does multilingualism play a role yeah so this is something that also sort of was born out of my own experiences and i think many speakers of multiple languages have those experiences where they may hear a word in one language that for some reason reminds them of something completely different in their other language, in their native language. So maybe, you know, you learned a word in a second language and either it sounds a little bit like uh, a word in your native language or part of it sounds like it, or maybe, uh, you know, the meaning of that word is somehow related to something in your, in your native language and you just kind of notice that your mind goes on this train of thought, like you think of X and then it brings you to Y and Z and you just go into this new network that you wouldn't have thought about if you didn't speak that language. And of course, monolinguals do that too. You know, they hear a word and it sends them on a train of thought. But with bilinguals, those connections are not just within language, but also across languages. So you, we talk. I talk a, a lot in the book about eye, my eye tracking research, where we record the eye movements of speakers who know more than one language, and we find that their eye movements are drawn to different things. So, for example, if you're a Russian speaker and you are being told to pick up a marker, you are likely to make eye movements to a stamp because the Russian word for stamp is marka, which overlaps at onset with the English word marker. Or if you're a Spanish speaker, you're likely to make eye movements to maybe a butterfly because butterfly is, you know, it's mariposa, so you have them, again, the overlap, the ma at the beginning. And that's true for all the words that we know. You know, they sometimes overlap in the same language. You can have marker and marbles, or you can have candy and candle. But then if you speak a different language, like Spanish, you would have candado, which is a lock. So this, this overlap across languages suddenly drives what captures our attention. So an English speaker, if they're being told to pick up a candy, 
and there is a candle on the desk, they will make quick eye movements to the candle without even being aware that they've done so. But if they speak Spanish, they will make eye movements to the lock as well. So different things capture the attention of different speakers. And not only that, but later on when you test their memory, they are more likely to remember that those objects were on the desk if they if there's this overlap. So, you know, native English speakers are more likely to remember that there was a, a marble. I, they looked for the marker. But Russian speakers are, in addition to the marble, also more likely to remember that there was a stamp. And, you know, English speakers are more likely to remember that there was a lock when they looked for the candy. So this form overlap between words guides what captures our attention, guides what we remember later, and guides these associations between how the words are related in our mind. And as a result, things that may seem completely unrelated to an English speaker, like to an English speaker, um, 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 you know, a candy and a lock are probably not related or a candle and a lock. <laughs> but in a Spanish speaker's mind, they are much more like they are more likely to think that they are related if you have them just do like simple experiments of how similar items are and you give you know hundreds upon hundreds of pairs of items and then you average across a lot of participants, you can see that this form similarity can influence how similar people perceive those items to be. In some languages, for example, uh, and I understand that in Hebrew, the word tablecloth and map translate onto the same word. So then Hebrew speakers, in their mental representation, tablecloth and map are a little bit more similar than in English speakers' or mental representations. So there are lots of things like that because of form, but not only form. There are other components that drive similarity. So another example would be, let's say, so a concept is represented of multiple different features. So if you take a bike, you know, what does a bike mean? Well, the concept bike has many features to it, like wheels and a handlebar. And, you know, maybe it depends. Like if you are an American English speaker, your mental representation of bike may mean exercising or being at the gym <laughs> or, you know, Peloton, lots of other things. But then if you are a, a, a Dutch speaker where bikes are, you know, the primary form of transportation and they're everywhere and you use them to go to work and drop the kids off to school. You may have, you know, a basket and a kid in the back and another kid in the front. And it's just a completely, you know, different. You have some of the features that are shared with English, but then some that are unique. And then if you have a, you're a French speaker, you know, your bike still has wheels and, you know, maybe a handlebar and lots of other things. But if you have the basket, maybe you might have a, a baguette. And that's my stereotype of French people <laughs> with a baguette in their basket. But then if you are this, you know, French English bilingual, then your mental representation of bike is a little bit different. So your you have maybe a stronger connection between baguette and, and wheels. And so this, you have the, the, this is sort of tied with the idea that neurons that fire together, wire together. So mm -hmm. when you have certain words that are coactivated, either because they share a form or they share semantic features, next time you act, you hear a word, they are more likely to coactivate related words in other languages or concepts in other languages that maybe share form or meaning or experience and then influence how, you know, the connections you make. And they may not even be something that you're aware of. It just guides your decision making. It guides your creativity. It guides your thought process. It guides, you know, the, the examples that you may provide or similarities you see in things and how creative you might be in your problem solving or your decision making. There are all of these things that 
are influenced or, or tied to language in this way? I think, well, firstly, the image I have in my mind now is just being on a Peloton bike and eating a baguette at the same time. And I think that is a great image um, for us to have. Um, and so thank you for that. Um, uh, <laughs> and I just... For the last part of our conversation, I want to move to the topic, which we have we have already touched upon before, about how, as you said, language is a proxy for us to use to have prejudice against the speakers of a language. And because language and prejudice are so tightly woven, I remember, and this isn't even, I wasn't even, it wasn't even like a prejudice thing, but one of the most recent examples is that I was, I was meeting a friend and who was no longer a friend, but um, this person, the moment they heard me speak and he was visiting from the States, he said, oh, I see that you're trying to fake sounding British. And I just froze and kind of thought, what? <laughs> what do you mean? Because I had nothing consciously had switched in my mind. So I was wondering if, you know, only very much later did I think like maybe that's, I, I thought for the longest time, am I being fake? So can you tell us a bit about this phenomenon and maybe why people that are not actually trying to be fake. <laughs> I'm so, so sorry that, that you had that experience. I'm sure it didn't feel good to have people sort of expect you to fall into a certain stereotype that they have of how you're supposed to sound. And you're not alone in that experience where we are expected to fulfill certain roles in how we speak, how we sound, how we think, what we do, what our roles are, what, you know, social ideas we should be falling in line for. You know, change is hard. And and we see that, you know, there's a lot of resistance to change. In that particular case, I think the person had a bias for what it means to sound British and how you should be sounding. And I mean, that ha- I'm sure that happens to you all the time where people would ask, you know, where are you from? Well, no, but where, re- where are you from really? And, you know, <laughs> what's your background? Like, who, where, where are you really from? And what's your real native language? That, that happens a lot. It happens to me as well all the time, of course. So it's, it's so important to, in, to have these conversations and I think bring them into awareness. I don't have a solution to that. I experience that like you all the time. And I think being brave and continuing to engage in, in, in conversations and saying, well, this is what the person who speak in, speaks English sometimes looks like. And <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how, to, how else to answer that. I think, I mean, I think that is a great answer to that. And I guess for the final, for our final question, I will say, how might we, in this case, we can't change how other people will act, but how can we better catch ourselves when perhaps we have biases or prejudices that we project on others based on the accents we hear or the languages we ourselves speak? That's a really good question. So changing, flipping it and, and being aware that we ourselves us, you know, subject to the same biases. This is how we, this is a society we've been raised in. I think awareness is the first step, just sort of being aware that this is something that we all do and educating ourselves and understanding that, you know, when a person speaks with an accent or does not speak English, that doesn't mean that that person doesn't have language or is not intelligent. That happens to kids all the time. You know, they might be starting kindergarten or they start school in a non-native language and they, the teacher assumes that they are cognitively impaired or that they have no language or they are, you know, behind mentally where, you know, 
the child is completely fine in their native language. So just sort of checking our own biases, reading on the topic, learning about linguistic diversity, learning about bilingualism, learning about multilingualism, and understanding that our own experience is not the be-all and end-all to what the human experience is like and what other minds and, and humans are like in, in, in this world. And really, I do think that increased representation of diverse perspectives, genders, races, ages, everything, sexual orientation, just increased diversity of voices in the public discourse will hopefully help move the, the needle along in, in, in embracing our diverse experiences. That is very true. And I think that our listeners will indeed contribute to moving that needle along. So I want to say lastly that having read about your hesitation in, to include your full name on the book cover and about how you were worried about whether people reading that name might then think about, might make assumptions about you or assumptions about the book that you've written, I just want to say I think it's so important that you did include it and that by doing so, you have probably helped others who have felt similar hesitation now find the courage to do the same. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining me on this on this podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I question that decision uh, almost every day, but you're right that, you know, we have to start living our truths and being who we are, even though I'm sure that if, you know, the book was written maybe by... Uh, I don't know, John Green or Jim White or, <laughs> you know, they have a very different perspective. But yes, I, I agree that it's, it's time to start putting our own names on our work. So thank you. I appreciate you saying that and thank you for having me today. And it just was a pleasure to talk to you. This episode starred Viorica Marianne and was produced and presented by Nicole Wong. It was edited by John Doughty and the show is executive produced by me, Bas Christodoulou and Esme Bright. If you enjoyed the episode, you know what to do. We love getting your reviews and promise to read all of them. Till next time, thanks for listening.